So good morning and welcome to Calvary Church in Brighton on Sunday the 29th of March 2020. Of course it's not actually Sunday the 29th of March, it's actually Saturday the 28th of March but we're recording this um, at Calvary Church for you this morning and whether you're a regular church member or a visitor or part of the church community or somebody from another church who's decided to tune in, or perhaps even a non-believer who's decided to watch this, you're very welcome, and we trust that although we cannot be together in body, one with another, we can still have spiritual fellowship, we can still worship the Lord together, and we pray the Lord will bless the service as we meet to worship him. A few notices before we begin. So don't forget, you can keep in touch with us um, during this time, Using our website, if you have internet access at www, uh, I'm sorry, that's www.calvarybrighton, Calvary, I'll start that again, www.calvary-brighton.org.uk. And you can find there sermons, news, updates, and so forth. Or you can contact us via telephone. Um, the number is Brighton 682 uh, leave a message on the answer phone if there's nobody here and we'll get back to you. Or you can email us at contact at calvarybrighton.org.uk. And we're still finding our feet at the moment, trying to keep in touch with people and trying to find um, a way to make sure as many people as possible get the news and updates from the church. So please bear with us and let us know if you want any information or help. Also, please be sure to listen in this evening at 6.30 when, when our brother David Rigglesworth will be bringing the word to us. And also on Wednesday at 7.45, we'll be having a virtual church meeting, a prayer meeting. It's very important that we should pray together at this time, so please try to join us if you can. If you want to have some notes with ideas for things to pray for, please contact us and we'll make sure that you get those notes by email. And also, if you want to tune in to our, our Zoom meeting, um, if you want to connect to that, please let us know. We'll be trying to make that happen so we can pray together at this time. Today, we're going to be doing what Christians always do when we meet together. We're going to be praising the Lord in song. We're going to be reading his word. And a bit later, I'm going to be opening his word. And we're going to be uh, praying together as well. And we pray the Lord will bless us. To begin with, I'd like to read Psalm 46, which is a a psalm which talks about um, faith in God in, in difficult and cataclysmic times. So let me read to you Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. And the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. The kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. 
He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I'd like to invite us this morning to sing our first song, which is In Christ Alone, which talks about the hope and the, and the joy and the, the blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to put our hope in him. So let's sing together.
Now I would like to lead us in a prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you as your people. And Lord, although we are not physically present together, we thank you that we can still, in spirit, come and worship you. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be in a particular place to sing your praises or to pray or to come before you, but we can come before you anywhere. We know, Lord, it's good and right that Christians should meet together. And Lord, we would dearly love to be together today, but that's not possible. And so we come before you in this way. We ask you, Lord, to be with each of us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to bless us. Pray, Lord, in this brief time that you would help us, Lord, to turn our thoughts away from our own problems, our own anxieties, our own concerns, and to turn our thoughts upon you, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you've kept us thus far. Thank you for your many, many blessings, your kindnesses to us as your people. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us. We know, Lord, that we've sinned against you. All of us have have done things which are uh, hateful to you. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to us. We pray, Lord, during this difficult time that you would deal with things in our hearts which need to be dealt with, that you would speak peace to us, that you would speak to our church and speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, to hear what the Spirit may be saying to the church. We pray, Lord, in this difficult time that you would speak to the hearts of men and women and boys and girls across this land and across many lands, that many would be shaken out of their complacency and turn towards the Saviour, the only Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for our government, we pray for our leaders and the leaders of other nations that they would have great wisdom at this time that you would give them mercy and help to lead their respective countries wisely and well for the good of the people. We pray for those in our church who are self-isolating, who are cut off from fellowship. We pray that you would keep them and preserve them at this time. Help them, Lord, not to fall into doubt and despair. Help them, Lord, not to turn away from you, but rather turn to you, finding their faith is strengthened, that their fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ carries them through this difficult time. Pray that you would lift up our heads, help us, Lord, not to become despondent or full of despair or weary. Help us, Lord, not to sin, but help us, Lord, to continue to walk with you, to do the things that you've told us to do, to read your word, to pray, to love one another. We pray that you would protect our fellowship, that one day, Lord, when we, when we come together again in the future, we would, be, we would be stronger as a body because of this time, that you would use it to achieve your purposes. We thank you, Lord, for, for your many, many kindnesses to us. We pray you would help us today to be encouraged. What a great God you are and how worthy you are of praise. So, Lord, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, 
we thought we'd do a song for the children this morning, and it's a song that you children know well because we've sung it quite often. And it's a song which is based on a very famous psalm, Psalm 23, which talks about the Lord being the shepherd of his people. Dear children, you know, as well as I do, this is a difficult time for all of us. And you know that your whole life has been changed because of this. But it's very important at this time that we remember that God, if we're Christians, is a shepherd for his people. Shepherd who cares for his sheep. Shepherd who protects us. Shepherd who laid down his life for us. So if you're at home watching this, please sing along and remember that the Lord is our shepherd. Let's sing. So this is The Lord is My Shepherd, the Calvary version. If ever I'm feeling sad, love. But the Lord is always there to guide me All of my days, watching all of my ways My shepherd is always beside me All of my days, watching all of my ways My shepherd is always beside me Now we're going to read today's passage Which was actually given to me long before I knew that this crisis was coming. So let's turn together to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, 1 to 20.
the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him a watchman, sorry, their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes to take the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sin and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you're saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your countrymen, the righteousness of the righteous man will not save him if he disobeys, and the wickedness of the wicked man will not cause him to fall when he turns from it. The righteous man, if he sins, will not be allowed to live because of his former righteousness. If I tell the righteous man that he will surely live, but then he trusts in his righteousness and does evil, none of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. He will die for the evil he's done. And if I say to the wicked man, you will surely die, but he then turns away from his sin and does what is right and just. If he gives back what he took in pledge for a loan, returns what he's stolen, follows the decrees that give life, and does no evil, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the sins he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He will surely live. Yet your countrymen say, the way of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, he will die for it. And if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live by doing so. Yet, O house of Israel, You say, the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Let us pray. Dear Lord, this is a strong word. This may may seem heavy to some people, but this is your word and it's recorded for us for our benefit. So we pray this morning you would help us now 
to understand what you may be saying to us through this word. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's sing, when peace like a river attends all my way.
So please keep your Bible open as we look at this passage together. You know, a lot has been said already about this crisis which we face. Many people, including Christians, have spoken and offered opinions and ideas about what is taking place. Recently, I was contacted by a fellow Christian from another church who said to me, Ben, there's going to be a national day of prayer. And these are the prayer points that have been suggested as Christian people seek to pray for the nation and for the nations at this time. Let me read to you the points that were shown to me. Number one, to stop the spread of the virus. Number two, the recovery of those already infected. Number three, praying for families, for peace for those who've lost loved ones. Number four, for the restoration of the economies around the world. Number five, pray for wisdom, pray for wisdom for the governments who have to manage the outbreak. Now, I looked at these prayer points, and I think it's, it's true to say that we as Christians can and should pray for these, these matters and, and other matters similar to them, to pray for the government, to pray for the um, alleviation of human suffering, to have mercy on our fellow man. But I've been going through a, quite a period of wrestling at this time, as, as I'm sure you have, with various issues connected with this virus, with this crisis. And we all have our own journey at this time and our own struggles and battles that we have to face. But I, I wonder, is that, are these things the only things that Christians should be praying for at this time? Is that all we can pray for, just for the recovery of life as it was before, if that were possible. I'm sure, if we're honest, most of us wish that life could go back to how it was just a few weeks ago, to this time last year, when everything was so stable and secure. We, people were worrying about Brexit, but that seems, seems to pay into insignificance compared to this turmoil, this upheaval that we now face. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go back to how we were before. But I want to put it to you this morning that as Christians we need to have a more nuanced, a more mature understanding of what God may be doing at this time. And it's not just a matter of praying that everything would be restored to how it was. What is God saying to the churches at this time? How is God using this crisis, this unprecedented upheaval, to further his purposes, to build the kingdom of his son? That's a question we need to be asking. We need to ask the Lord to give us wisdom and insight. Just suppose that God answered these prayers and everything went back to normal in a very short space of time. So in a few weeks if that were possible, the disease, the virus was dealt with, football could start again, entertainment could start again, shopping could start again, 
Socialising could start again. Life went back to normal. What would happen if that were the case? Well, a lot of people, including Christians, would breathe a sigh of relief, wouldn't they? None of us enjoys this. And we do feel deeply concerned about those who are suffering and losing their jobs, their livelihoods, those who are isolated and lonely. But wouldn't it be a very sad thing if everything went back to normal, and people went back to their, their idols, went back to their godless lives, their arrogance, their agendas? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be sad if that's all that happened, people just went back to those things to live the way they did before with no reference to God, by and large? It's good and right that we as Christians should do good whenever we can to pray for the good of the city, the nation, the world. But dear friends, I desperately want things to go back to normal in one way, but I also don't want people to go back to how they were before. I don't want society to go back to how it was before. Restoration, healing has to come with repentance. And if there is no repentance, if there is no turning to God, then how can we pray and expect restoration? How can we expect blessing? At this time, many people are mourning for the loss of their idols. I'm sure there are many football fans, sports fans today who are who would give no thought of going to a place of worship on a Sunday, who would happily go to the football stadium and worship their God. Those people today are mourning the loss of that God. And they want that God to come back. Is that something that we should be praying for? Dear friends, we need to pray that God uses this time to turn the hearts of people back to himself. To cause a great shaking, shaking and awakening amongst people that have lived for so many years with no reference to him at all. Let's turn to our passage today and let's see what this has to say about the current situation. The word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel 33, verses 1 and 2. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to you, say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. So the word of the Lord came to the prophet Ezekiel and gave him a message for the people of Israel. Have you noticed how God says he will bring a sword against their land in verse 2? If you read the earlier chapters of Ezekiel, it's well worth reading them. You'll see some of the horrors that God has, has promised to his people for their wickedness, for their adultery. And you, could, you can also read a list of sins that they committed. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible catalogue of sins, wickedness against God. So I think it's, it's chapter 16, you can read there about some of the things that people were doing 
And the mind boggles when you read it. You think this is absolutely atrocious. People of God supposedly breaking his law, doing terrible things. And then in, in chapter 2, I believe it is, we see the, the punishments, the, the judgments that God pours out on his people for this wickedness, which were fully deserved. And then, of course, you have to look at our society and you realize that the, the sins that we commit are not much different from the sins that Israel were committing. We need to think about this sort of judgment very carefully. When disaster comes, when great upheaval and judgment comes, it's not always a case of God allowing something to happen. Time and time again, we read in the scriptures that God doesn't just allow things to happen, but he causes things to happen. There's a mystery in that. We don't fully understand how that works, but God is the one who brings judgment upon people who sin against him and break his law and defy him to his face. We see even in this passage, towards the end of it, the people accuse God of being unjust. Verse 17, the way of the Lord is not just, say the people, but actually it's their way that is not just. God has not been unjust to anyone, but it's the people who should know better, who are being unjust, who are being wicked, and bringing this tragedy upon themselves. We can learn a lesson here about the sovereignty of God in judgment. God very often uses human means and natural means to bring about his purposes, to execute his judgment. What was the sword that God was using against his people Israel in this case? Well, one of the key, key facets was the Babylonians, ruthless people, invading their land and causing devastation. The Babylonians had no fear of the God of Israel. They wouldn't bow the knee to him. They had no sense that they were doing his will. And yet, in their wickedness, in their aggression, God was using them as his sword against his own people. And I want to to encourage you this morning that it's, it's very comforting to know that sometimes wicked people who have no desire to honor God are actually used by him to achieve his purposes. And I believe that also applies to other other um, natural means that God uses to bring about judgments. So bad things happen. Devastation comes. But behind it, in many cases, is God bringing about his judgment upon people that so desperately need to be turned from their ways. Now let's look at the commission of Ezekiel and the idea of a watchman. So we see this in verse 2. The people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. So obviously, in the, the cities of the ancient world had a system of early warning um, to help them 
um, be prepared for an attack by an invading enemy. And the people of Israel were no different. They had to appoint a man who would go up on the city walls to a very high place where he could see the wide uh, landscape spread out in front of him. And his job was to stand there and watch and watch and keep watching and then to alert them if he saw an enemy approaching on the horizon. I think it was a bit like um, an equivalent of a radar system put in place to warn of enemy attack so that people might be prepared to face that attack. What an important and responsible job this would be to be a watchman on the walls. Who would you choose for a job like this? Well, obviously someone trustworthy and reliable, someone that you could trust to stand there and watch out the coming attack so that you could go about your business. You trust that person to protect you by watching out. Then, of course, with the watchman in place on the wall, the people were free to go about their daily lives. They trusted him to alert them of any coming danger. So God says, I'm going to bring, if I, I bring, a, bring the sword against the land, the people will appoint a watchman. And there will be several different outcomes, possible outcomes that could come when the watchman does his duty or otherwise. So let's look at them together. The first possibility we find in verse 4. If anyone hears the trumpet but does not take the warning, warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. So the first possibility is this. The watchman sounds the warning, he blows his trumpet, and the people of the city ignore him. In that case, the watchman has done his duty, he's carried out his responsibility, and if the people do not listen, they only have themselves to blame for this calamity that will come upon them. So that's the first possibility. The watchman warns people, people ignore him. The second possibility is the watchman warns and the people respond to him. Look at verse 5. If he had taken warning, talking about the people of the city, he would have saved himself. This is the best outcome, isn't it? So the watchman sees the enemy coming, he blows his trumpet, the people hear the, hear the signal, and they respond, they save themselves. The watchman has done his job, and all are saved. There is another possibility which we read about in verse 6. And that possibility is this, the watchman fails to warn the people. Look at this, verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. What a terrible thing it would be if the watchman, who was supposed to be guarding his people, who had been appointed to that task, either, either through negligence or willful wickedness, or perhaps just laziness, Failed to warn those people, innocent people, not innocent, but people going about their daily lives in ignorance 
of the disaster coming upon them. That man not doing his job properly. Notice that the watchman is not held accountable by God for the response of the people. He's not held accountable for how they respond to his warning, but only for doing his job properly. Notice in verse 6 that God says the people will be taken away. He'll be taken away because of his sin. So the people deserve to be judged. They deserve for the sword to come upon them. But even so, even so, the watchman will be held accountable for their blood because he's behaved wickedly, immorally, by not warning the people as he ought to have done. I find it very interesting in this passage that God is the one who brings the sword against his people. And he says that they may be taken away because of their sin in verse 6. And yet, God expects and anticipates that the people will take measures to to protect themselves from the sword when it comes by, by appointing this watchman to watch out, to warn them. And what's more, God doesn't only expect and anticipate them to, to put a warning system in place to protect them from the sword of his judgment, but he also will hold that watchman accountable, responsible for doing his job that the people might be saved. And I think this illustrates very much the mercy of God in his judgment. He brings judgment, the judgment is deserved, and yet God, in his great mercy, still provides a way for the people to be delivered. And this illustrates very much the point in verse 11, which God makes, which is a very precious verse to us as Christians. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So our God is not some kind of sadist who enjoys human suffering. God is a compassionate and gracious God. And God, in his judgment, always provides a way out. He always provides a refuge. He always provides salvation for those that are willing to turn, those that are willing to seek him and repent. If people fail to listen to the warning, if the watchman blows his trumpet and the people do not listen, they've only got themselves to blame. It's not God's fault. It's not the watchman's fault, but their own fault for not listening to the warning of judgment that was upon them. Now, just as the people were to appoint a watchman to stand on the city walls, so God also appoints his own watchman in these verses. Look at verse 7. Son of man. Son of man here just means human. That's how God addresses Ezekiel. Son of man, I've made you a watchman. I've made you a watchman. I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Ezekiel's job was not to stand on the city wall with a trumpet by his side, scanning the horizon for enemies. But his job was to speak the word of the Lord to his people, the people of Israel, in the face of disaster, in the face of judgment. His job was not to to pick up that trumpet and sound a blast, but to speak the word of the Lord, to warn the people. 
We can see the message and the ministry of Ezekiel had four, I think, four distinct elements to it. And I want you to, to look at these with me now. So these are in verses 7 to 11. What was it that Ezekiel was supposed to do to be a watchman for the house of Israel? Well, the first thing he was to do was to warn the people, as, I, as I've already said. Verses 7 and 8. Hear the word I speak and give them warning from me, says the Lord. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not seek to dissuade him from his ways. Let's leave it there for a moment. So the idea of warning the people. Through his prophet, through his watchman, God bluntly, honestly, directly warns his people what the consequences of their sin will be. The consequences of continuing on this road that leads to destruction. He warns people through his words. The second facet of his ministry is dissuasion. What does it mean to dissuade somebody? Well, it's the opposite of persuade. To persuade somebody means that you you try to encourage them, to urge them to do something. And to dissuade someone is, is the complete opposite. It's to try to convince them or persuade them not to do something. Verse 8, he says this, you need to dissuade him from his ways. The prophet has a job to try to convince the people to turn from their particular path and turn to a different path, to turn from their sins and to repent and seek the Lord. The third element of Ezekiel's ministry is a reasoning ministry, reasoning with the people. And I get this from verse 10. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? So I don't know if you'd really call it reasoning, but the prophet is is called to to enter into a kind of dialogue with the people. To to show them, to highlight the words that they are saying in their sin and in their suffering to kind of make a case in in a sense and say, well, this is what you're saying. This is what the Lord says. It's a kind of reasoning, you know, a kind of engagement, a verbal engagement with the people to try to to show them the error of their ways. At least the people at this time apparently had some kind of consciousness of their sin. They knew it was their sin that was causing them to suffer, which is more than you can say for many people. Then finally, the fourth element of this ministry is a call to repentance. We get this in verse 11, which we mentioned already. God says in verse 8, you will surely die. When I say to the wicked, wicked, oh wicked man, you will surely die. When God says you will surely die, that is followed by an appeal to repent, to turn away from wickedness. When God says you you will surely die, he's not saying they are completely doomed, but only that they must turn from their present course. There is hope. There is salvation. And that's been offered to the people. And God uses his prophet, his watchman, to make a direct appeal to the people. Turn, turn and live. The Lord holds out to them through through his spokesman, 
the offer of life rather than death. So let me just recap those for you. The four elements of Ezekiel's ministry in these verses are warning, dissuasion, reasoning, and a call to repentance. Now, I want you to cast your mind back to five minutes ago when we talked about the watchman on the wall and the different possible responses to his ministry, his work. And just as with that watchman on the wall, so Ezekiel could anticipate one of several different outcomes. The first outcome is this. Ezekiel does his job, preaches, warns, reasons, calls to repentance, and the people ignore him and are lost. The second outcome, which is the outcome that that God desired, which was the best outcome, is that Ezekiel did his job. He warned, he persuaded, he, he reasoned, he called people to repentance. The people listened, they heeded the warning, and they were saved. And there was a third outcome and a solemn warning for Ezekiel that he would fail to warn the people, just like the watchman on the wall failing to blow the trumpet. And if he did that, if he, if he neglected his duty that God had commissioned him to do, then he would be held responsible before God. And it's, it's very, very serious. It's important that we get to grips with the severity, with the solemnity of this calling to be a watchman. Speak the words of God to a dying people. In verse 8, we see God warning Ezekiel that he will be held accountable for the blood of the wicked man if he refuses to warn him. It says this, I will hold you accountable for his blood. But in verse 9, he says this, If you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. As I said, what a sacred calling this is. What a solemn calling for Ezekiel. What a responsibility lay upon his shoulders to warn the people. What has this got to say to us today? Well, throughout history, God has had his prophets We read about them in the Old Testament. God has raised up prophets to speak his unadulterated word to his people, to proclaim his word of judgment and salvation. And that, in a sense, has has always been true, and in a sense is still true, true today, even in this gospel age. I want to put it to you today that the ministry of Christians, particularly evangelists, particularly pastors, particularly those who stand up and open the word of God, is actually very similar in many ways to Ezekiel's calling. We don't have prophets in the same way in these days, but we do have a prophetic ministry, not foretelling the future, not receiving dreams and visions from God, but declaring his word boldly, the unadulterated, pure word of God in these days. And I want to put it to you as well that these, these men who stand up, and in a sense all Christians who, who witness to others, we all have 
responsibility before God and will be held accountable to God for how we discharge the duties of our ministry. It should concern us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message preached in many churches today, and it concerns me, is not the message or not the full message that we read about in the Bible. Sometimes I, just, I really despair of how soft and spineless the gospel has become as it's presented in many churches. And often it misses out such key elements. You know, you can preach something that's true about God, but you can actually distort the message by not preaching the whole truth, the unadulterated truth. As we've seen, Ezekiel was given a message as God's watchman that had four elements to it. Let me remind you, warning, dissuasion, reasoning, and the urging of repentance. When we see the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we see how gracious he was towards sinners, how welcoming he was towards them, how kind he was and compassionate. But we also see in his teaching the same element of warning, dissuasion, reasoning, giving people reasons, and also urging people to repent. When we, see, we read about the, the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, we see the same message. We see these elements present. What do we see? Well, we see warnings of coming judgment, don't we? The teachings of Jesus and the apostles are full of, of teaching about the coming judgment, about the consequences of sin, the consequences of unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin. People have always been and are still many people heading on a broad highway that leads to unmitigated destruction. Many people are destroying their lives through sin, disobedience. Many people have no idea what danger they're in. No matter how moral and caring people may be, and we, we thank God there are many people in this world who by God's common grace serve others and do good, and that's wonderful. But no matter how moral and caring people are, they still fall short of the glory of God. They need to be reconciled to him through faith in the Lord Jesus. And that is the only way. So there is a warning that needs to be sounded. And that warning doesn't just come at a time of crisis like this. That warning has to ring out every single day. The Lord Jesus is coming back. And there will be fearful consequences for those that don't turn to him. Does it not break your heart when you look at the, the complacency of people? The arrogance of people, the godlessness of people. And I don't take the moral high ground. I would be just the same were it not for the grace of God. For many years of my life, I lived my life with no reference to God at all. We need to warn people. Graciously, lovingly, compassionately, but we need to warn them. It really matters. There's also this, this element of dissuasion as well trying to convince people to turn from their ways. Just telling people that God loves them, that God cares about them, without calling them to turn, is not enough in itself. It's not the gospel. 
People do need to know that God is compassionate and merciful and that God will receive them if they turn to him. But they need to know they can't just dabble in Christianity. Come to God whenever they need him, like the emergency services. You know, I don't call the fire brigade every day of the year or or the ambulance to come. I only call it when there's an emergency. And some people treat God like that. Now, I live most of my life without even thinking about him at all. When I need him, he's there. We need to try and dissuade people from their ways so that they might turn to God and live. And then there's the element of reasoning. Just as, as Ezekiel highlighted the, the, the words of the people and, and put those words back to them, we need to engage with the people of our generation and we need to reason with them and give them reasons why this is logical, why this is wise, why this is the sensible option to turn away from sin and turn to God and be saved. We need to outline the gospel and show them the, the wisdom of God in sending his son to be a sacrifice and atoning sacrifices for the sins of his people. We need to show them the wisdom of God in his dealings with people. We need to give them reasons and and show them how their sin is destroying their lives. That they might turn and be saved. We need to show them the folly of continuing on this present course. Some people are very, very gifted at giving reasons, reasoning with people in the church. And I thank God for those people who've been gifted in this particular way. We all need to be prepared to give a reason. And of course, there's the fourth element, which was true for Christ, the Lord Jesus and the apostles. And it should be true for us as well. When we, when we proclaim the word of God to people, as I've mentioned already, the, the, the urgent need to repent, the call to repentance. We Christians, we have the only message that can give any real hope to people. Do you realize that? We have the only message that can save people from eternal destruction and judgment. The world has no clue. It's going going mad. There's no hope. We have that hope. We, as Christian people, we don't speak our own words. We speak the word of God. We speak the gospel. We hold out to people the offer of eternal life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness of sins in his name. But I think what we need, which we've perhaps lacked in our churches, and I recognize there are different people with different characters, different temperaments. What we lack so often in so many churches is a degree of this emotional intensity that we see the Lord expressing in verse 11. So look at that verse again. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Why will you die, O house of Israel? And when we preach the gospel, we cannot do it in a cold-hearted, clinical way. I mean, obviously, there are times when we speak to people, we have to be measured. I'm not suggesting that we just rant and rave at people, but people need to see that we really care about this. That This is important. We're concerned about their souls. We're urging them, pleading with them, turn, turn, repent, and believe, be saved. Great compassion and love. The most loving thing you can do is not pat someone on the back in his sin. Just encourage him to continue on that path, but to turn him away 
God gives a very strong assurance in verses 14 to 16 that if a sinner hears the warning, heeds the warning, and repents of his sins, his sins will not be remembered against him. That reminded me of a very famous verse in Romans 4, verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin God will never count against him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, a man is justified, he's declared righteous in the sight of God. God will never count his sins against him. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're a believer who's been born again, you put in your trust, not in yourself, not in your good works, not in anything else, but Christ as the means of salvation, as your substitute, as your saviour. If you're doing that this morning, God will never count your sins against you. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous in his sight. And God promises to do that even in these verses. So if you become conscious of your sin, which can be a crushing blow, a crushing burden, if you come under conviction, don't think that God will not receive you. Don't believe the lie that somehow your sins are too bad for God to receive you. Because God makes it very clear in these verses. If you turn from your sin, you turn to God in repentance, God will not count your sins against you through faith in Christ. So if there's anyone listening to this this morning who feels that their sin is just too great to be forgiven, take these words to heart. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you repent and believe in him, God will never count your sin against you will never hold your sin against you. What a wonderful thing that is. There's also a warning here for the complacent in verse 13. If I tell the righteous man that he will surely live, then he trusts in his righteousness and does evil. None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. He will die for the evil he has done. I want to speak here this morning. I've no idea who's watching this. Perhaps your friend has encouraged you to watch this on YouTube or whatever, or listen to this online. I want to encourage you that, and, and warn you, there are some people who at one point professed to be believers, who perhaps got baptised, who walked or appeared to walk with the people of God, who perhaps sang Christian songs and appeared to be worshipping the Lord and perhaps even prayed wonderful prayers, perhaps even led churches and led ministries. And spoke to other people as I'm speaking to you today. There are people like that who are no longer walking with the Lord. There are people like that who've drifted into to error, fallen into sin or have walked into sin, turned their backs on the gospel, turned their backs on the Lord whom they professed. And it's possible that on the day of judgment, some of those people will stand before God and say, Well, I was a Christian, I'm a Christian, I used to go to church. I think I believe the words of Christ will come to those people. He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And I, I'm deeply grieved, I've mentioned this before, about people that I've known in my life who've walked away from God. Perhaps they've completely abandoned the faith, perhaps they still call themselves Christians but are no longer really walking with him. And dear friends, you cannot trust in your previous life as a Christian to justify you on that day, to save you from judgment. 
What matters is that you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ this day. And this, my friends, this is a perfect time in this crisis to think about where you're going, where you've come from, where you're heading, if the Bible is true, which I believe it is. If there's any young person here today, you may have grown up in the church. Your parents took you to church and for a while you went to Sunday school and you've walked away. Let me plead with you, let me urge you, come back to the Lord. You cannot trust, you will not be able to trust in your former righteousness as you saw it. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort, he's talking about the return of Christ, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. If the Lord Jesus were to come today, would you be found blameless, spotless, and at peace with him? And there's a warning also for for those of us in the church who may be drifting in some way and allowing compromises into our life. That's a very, very dangerous thing to do. I speak to myself, I speak to all of us. We cannot afford to play with fire. We need to be right with God and walking with him, closely with him. So, a gospel message, the gospel message, must contain in some way all of these elements. This is what people need to know. This is what people need to hear. It should contain a warning, an element of dissuasion, reasoning, an urging of people to repent, and I'll have one other reassurance as well, one other element, which is assurance of salvation, assurance that God will receive the sinner that comes to him, which we see in these verses, that God will not turn them away because of their past sin. Now, of course, you don't need me to tell you, we need to be be gentle and wise and sensitive and loving in the way we put this across to people. There are different ways of doing this. We, we cannot on every single occasion always say all these, use all these four elements in our gospel presentation, but in our conversations with people, non-believers, if God were to open the door to have a conversation, an encounter with a non-believer, which I pray will happen a lot in these days, I think we should be very careful that we, 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 we speak a biblical gospel that contains these elements. You and I both know that sometimes people are closed to the gospel. The only right thing to do is to turn away from those people and pray for them, not to keep on if they close the door. Let me say this as well. We're not talking about ranting and raving at people in a kind of crazy, unhinged way that you do see Christians doing at times. On the contrary, this message, although it contains great emotional intensity, although it contains urgency, a key part of the message is presenting rationally to the human mind reasons to turn away from sin and to turn to God. So that the Christian message is not some kind of just shouting and raving, it's to appeal to people, to urge people, to to reason with people, to give them reasons, to show them the, the wisdom of turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. When we preach the gospel, just as when Ezekiel preached his message, there'll be, and when the watchman spoke 
sounded the trumpet, there will be different outcomes. One outcome is that people will not listen when we speak the word of God faithfully. Another outcome is that people will listen. There's another issue which we need to be aware of, is that we may fail to speak and God will hold us accountable. Let's just quickly look at these different responses in the light of the current situation. The first scenario is that we speak faithfully the word of God using these elements that I've mentioned and that people do not listen. Even in this day, we should not be fooled into thinking that everybody will turn to the Lord. That's a sad fact. and We, we see it in the Bible time and time again when God judges his people or judges people in general. We see it with Pharaoh, don't we? That Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart as well as a result of that. The fact that calamity and judgment is coming upon people doesn't mean that necessarily they will listen. And I believe that in these days there will be those who will not listen, who will harden their hearts even more against God. And they will hate and ridicule his messengers. Even this week I've seen various reports of non-believers ridiculing Christians, talking about the judgment and the end of the world. But if people do not listen, they will not be able to say that nobody warned them, that nobody cared enough to tell them the truth. If you hear this word this morning and you do not listen, if you're not a believer and you do not listen, you have only yourself to blame because I'm telling you now as as God's servant that you must turn away from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven if you do. I've done my duty by telling you the truth. What you do with it is up to you. Dear friends, that's not always the case. The people will not listen. It's very possible, and I pray earnestly in these days that this happens, that we speak the word of God faithfully. We speak the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, and that some people will listen. They'll hear the trumpet being sounded. We know that God, in his sovereign purposes, has people. And he's opening their hearts by grace that they might receive the gospel. They heed the warnings. They listen to the reasoning. They repent and put their faith in Christ, receive salvation. That's a wonderful thing. That's what we should pray for in these days. Pray earnestly, not just that the economy will go back to normal, people will go back to their previous way of life, that people will be changed. People will not be able to go back to the way they were before, that many, many will be saved in all, all kinds of countries and situations. They'll turn, they'll realize their life is short. They'll realize that the foundations they build their lives upon are shaky. They'll realize their idols cannot save them. They'll turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in these days and live and hear the warning. We need to articulate that warning and tell them what this, what's going on in these days. Whatever else this may be, this is a reminder to us that life is fragile and that we need to get right with God. There is great rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. Jesus says that. 
God is willing for people to be saved. God wants people to be saved. God is calling people to be saved. He's making his appeal through us, his servants. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. You know, friends, for a long time now as a church, we've been praying for an awakening. We've been praying for this godless city in which we live, for this godless nation. We pray that people we know and care about would turn from their sin, turn from their their lives, their godless lives, and put their trust in Jesus. And we haven't seen much of that. What if in these days God would, would use this great calamity, this catastrophe, to turn many of these people, to shake them up, to shake them out of their complacency, that they might put their trust in him, in his son, the Lord Jesus. So it's a bit like an operation, you know, an operation, an emergency operation to save somebody's life is painful and traumatic, but it produces a greater good. And what if at the moment God is doing something amazing and remarkable? Yes, some will be hardened, some will turn turn their backs further against God, but some will believe and be saved. That's what we should be praying for. There is another possible outcome, which I've mentioned already, which was true for for the the watchman on the wall, it was true for Ezekiel, and it's true for us. And that is that we, we we fail to speak faithfully. And we will be held accountable to God. And I pray that in our case that will not be what happens. And this is a particular warning, not necessarily for every single Christian, although we can all learn from this, but particularly for every person, as I mentioned, every evangelist, elder, pastor, preacher, vicar, bishop, archbishop. James warns us that those who teach will be judged more strictly. We are not at liberty as God's servants to to preach our own messages but to preach the word of God as best as we can with God's help by God's grace we speak God's word we stand on the authority of God's word one day all of us will stand before him and give account for how we conducted our ministry and I take that very seriously and I've been disappointed in some cases in these days when prominent church leaders National figures have been given platforms to speak to the nation. In a sense, they're like a watchman who's been put on a high place so he can proclaim to the whole city the warning to come and they haven't preached the warning. I've heard prominent leaders say things like this, we should encourage each other to hear God's voice of caring love We should care for other people. We should pray for the needy. Even things like we should celebrate the good of the human spirit, which is universal to all people. And of course, we do pray that people would know God's caring love. We do pray uh, for our our NHS workers and our police and, and our governments and for our relatives. We do pray for those things. But is that all we can say as Christians about this situation? Because those things are quite humanistic, really. Those things are quite universal. Everybody would agree with those things. We all want, we all want people to be well. We want our, you know, our, our love to be shown to people. 
But one thing seems to be lacking so often amongst these prominent leaders and men, and in many churches, I fear, is this call to repentance. With great respect, that's not how Jesus and the apostles and the prophets spoke to people. With this kind of wishy-washy, good general feeling, you know, let's all be kind to each other. That's all well and good, but we need to preach something which is salty. Seasoned with salt. Something which has spiritual worth and value. We need to preach the gospel very clearly in these days. We don't want this, we don't need this vague and woolly spiritual comfort. We don't need people implying a kind of universal fatherhood of God that somehow we're all God's children and it's going to be okay. We do not need people who do not clearly set out the terms of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only hope and saviour of perishing men. And if, if anybody is watching this, who's, who's a church leader, who's not preaching this, maybe for years you haven't preached this, do you believe that Jesus is the only hope of perishing men? If so, let me urge you, with gentleness, but with great compassion, with great fervour, to preach to people, to, to, to tell people about the wonderful news that Jesus saves, that death is not the end for the Christian. We need to speak the truth in love, but we do need to say something of spiritual value in these days. James says this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways, of their way, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The most loving ministry you can exercise is to turn somebody away by God's grace from their sin that they might receive salvation and life. I think it's irresponsible and negligent in these days when fear of death stalks this land, when we've we've got these unprecedented opportunities to speak the truth, when our merciful God is sounding a trumpet of of judgment, a warning to people to turn to him while they still can. It's negligent and irresponsible if we don't use that opportunity. We need wisdom and grace to do that. How merciful is our God that he has not allowed this nation to, to feel the full brunt of his fury, of his judgment. That he's... he's calling out to us to stop going down this precipice, towards the precipice of destruction. As I said before, we all want this nightmare to be over, but do you really want people just to go back to their complacency? What if this is being used by God to prevent a much greater tragedy? Lost eternity. Peter tells us in the New Testament that God does not want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. Paul tells us as well that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. John tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Dear friends, I believe 100% in God's sovereignty and salvation. 
But I also know this. The word of God says that God is, is willing, is, is, he desires for people to, to believe and be saved. It does not diminish man's responsibility. If you hear this, you need to respond. It does not diminish the free offer of the gospel, the church's commission to preach to dying men the good news of eternal life in Christ. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 10 verse 42. Let's make sure we have a biblical gospel. A gospel that meets the needs of lost and dying people. Let's make sure that however people respond to us, that we are faithful, we remain faithful to our calling as Christians to testify to the Lord Jesus. May God bless you all. May may God be gracious to to us all. And let's pray together as we finish. Father, this has been um, in some ways a difficult word because we know it concerns salvation and judgment and responsibility before you. Please help us, Lord, to love our fellow human beings enough at this difficult time that we we speak to them of the only hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, which you've graciously revealed to us. We pray, Lord, in these days of shaking, we would use the opportunities to speak of our Lord Jesus, that many, many might come to know the grace and the love and the forgiveness which you are calling them to through the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing our final hymn, which is, My hope is built on nothing less. Cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less. Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame But wholly trust in Jesus' name When darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging
call with trump and shell oh may i then in him be found To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with, with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.